Oh, hello. Let me put my stuff down. Welcome to the Idaho Street Workshop. I just got home from work. I ride my bike most days. It's about three miles each way. It's a nice ride, especially this time of year. Today, about halfway home, there was a moment, a moment riding down this hill on mission between Park and Monroe that my mind wandered. That I, I was, I was thinking about H.G. Wells and his time machine, how he described it as a relatively simple machine, some knobs and levers and a saddle. I, I always imagine it as a bike saddle, a very British name for a bike seat. A time traveler on a bicycle headed to the future. The Idaho Street Workshop is proud to present Changes, a six-episode limited series. This is episode four. The narrative of this episode is a collage of the past, present, and future, told through monologue, factual presentation, and non-linear dialogue between three voices. In the prior episodes, we have learned a bit about Nick, that he has died on his bicycle riding home from a party. He was headed south on Western Avenue near Augusta. This was in Chicago. It was a hit and run. We have learned that Jerome, the prism that most of the story is told through, doesn't like to talk about his sister Remy. She died on the same day, Labor Day, 2003. Remy was active duty in Iraq when she died. Episode 4, The Story of Remy. Featuring the voice talents of Anna Clark, Brian Taylor, and myself, John Wenzel. For more information on the series, please visit our website, idahostreetworkshop.com. Part 1, The Forest. On the far side of the ocean, I want to feel the soil between my toes, not the sand. It's not my fault. I'm just standing here. I'm standing beside you. So, I have journeyed half my life's way, and now, now I find myself on the edge of a forest. Can you find me? I'm here, just inside the tree line. It's hard to describe what it's like. I'm living in another, another time. It's hard to speak. Please, can you try? Try to tell me of the dense and the difficult, the fear, the nights of sorrow. I'm not sure that's the way I would describe it, but but, but let me just, just rest, rest my, my body, body for a bit for now. Please, do you mind? Nick? I'm standing beside you. Remy? I can tell you in a few words. They will not explain it, but they will help. You breathe in, you breathe out. You breathe in. You breathe out. You breathe in. You breathe in. You breathe out. You breathe out. You breathe in. You breathe out. You breathe in. You breathe out. That's a good place to start. Tell me more about the forest. It's all around me. I can see the specifics, the details like a single leaf, but any hopes of seeing the context of the leaf is lost. It's too vast to understand. I've abandoned hope of understanding the fullness, the completeness. Part two, a factual look at the first woman to die in the Iraq war. Dateline, Labor Day, 2008. The true story of the death 
of Lance Corporal Remy Johnson is now understood, or at least more understood. It is a story that has taken three years to report out the true details. The story that the family was told, that the country was told, was one we wanted to hear. The story the military first told was one of convenience, a fabrication, filling our desire for a just death, for an honorable death, not a death filled with questions. Ms. Johnson was born August 6, 1974 at 9.57 a.m., seven minutes before her twin brother, Jerome, at Mercy Hospital, Omaha, Nebraska. Her upbringing was that of a bright child, one with a grand future ahead of her. She received a full-ride scholarship to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, where she graduated magna cum laude with a dual degree in world history and Arabic studies. She got into the highly regarded Department of Linguistics at the University of Chicago, where she was working on her PhD, until the morning that changed all of our lives. September 11, 2001. She heard the call, and following in her family's footsteps, she became the third generation in her family to serve during wartime. Her uncle, Jackie Johnson, spoke of her as a kind and generous person, always looking out for us, a true American, adding that it was a shame for her to die. Ms. Johnson left her studies and Chicago for Fort Leonard Wood and basic training. Sergeant Anderson saw her drive and courage and suggested to his commander that she be fast-tracked through BASIC. Her language skills and training in Arabic history and culture were of a particular skill set that was in high demand. While officially attached to the 3rd Training Support Battalion at Fort Meade, Johnson was now actually a part of a CIA task force, specifically designed to research members of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and other regional threats. The specifics of this time of service are highly classified, and the few people willing to talk to me on background spoke highly of her service and her ability to sort details, her ability to see the forest and the trees. In March 2003, Lance Corporal Johnson was now one of the first to step foot in Iraq. She and her unit were then attached to the 101st Airborne, but still answered solely to a joint NSA-CIA task force. She was a lead interviewer and, with a small group of Americans, interrogated captured Iraqi troops. The full extent of the work she did at Abu Ghraib during this time is unknown. While several news reports have been done on the abuses, all records surrounding these interrogations were destroyed by military personnel, so the true abuses are unknowable. But we now know that enhanced interrogation techniques were used during this time. Those techniques include yelling, loud music and light control, environmental manipulation, sleep deprivation, stress positions, 20-hour interrogations, controlled fear, including the use of dogs. Abusive techniques such as waterboarding were also reported along with physical and sexual abuse, torture, rape, and murder. Remy told Private Cindy Albert, who was also a language specialist on base, that she was uncomfortable with how they were treating the Iraqi soldiers. While the specifics of what they were doing are not known, Private Albert indicated that Remy was having trouble with completing the most basic tasks. 
New documents have been obtained showing that the official cause of death was, at best, a white lie and, at worst, a federal offense. Corporal Johnson's official cause of death was listed as unintentional small arms fire. The family followed up with the army, but nothing more was provided at the time. It wasn't until I saw her brother's post on a user group that any explanations were found. In June of 2005, I submitted numerous freedom of information requests and called all of my sources in the military in pursuit of the truth. Earlier this month, all the hours of hard work paid off. I found the truth. She was depressed. She was unable to take what her country was making her do. She was being asked to cause mental and physical pain to Iraqi soldiers. There isn't an easy way to say it. Remy Johnson committed suicide. She ended her life. She shot herself with her service revolver just after 2,300 hours on Labor Day 2003. This is the truth. Part three, tell me more about the forest. It's all around me. I can hear everything all at once. The creaking of branches, leaves rustling, a bird, another, the same one again. The distant sound of traffic, a plane overhead. Can you hear the clouds? I can see them through the canopy, but they're so far away. I know I will stay in the forest. I know I will stay in the forest. I know I will stay in the forest. Who are you? I'm a person. I have a body. I know that I have a body. I can feel the sand between my toes. I can feel the wind in my hair. I have a pain in my knee from that time I hurt it when we were kids. It still hurts sometimes. Let's start again. What else is in the forest? The forest is a mental block, a figment of my imagination. I am in a forest. The forest is a destination of space that has a purpose, that is outside the functioning of the space around it. People are brought into the forest from the outside. It is safe for us here. It is supposed to be safe for the people we bring here. At first, I started my days with a stapler on the left, a phone on the right, and a computer monitor, keyboard, and mouse straight ahead. I was at attention, waiting to receive the call, to use my skill to help the nation. But now, after all I've seen, what I participated in, my will is all but gone. It is in the abyss, fallen there these two past years. You breathe, I in. breathe in. You breathe in. I breathe in. I breathe out. I breathe in. I breathe in. I breathe out. I breathe in. I breathe out. I breathe in. I breathe in. Let's start again. Let's start again. On this side of the ocean, I was at home. My new home, Chicago. After the towers, I felt it was my duty to help in any way I could. I could translate. I could use my words to help. I always thought language is how the future is made. The words, 
How we describe the present helps make the future possible. Not bullets, not bombs, but words. I thought it would help mend the gulf. In grad school, I taught, I wrote, and did what I was supposed to do. It seemed important. I pledged my service to the country, like my father's before me, to spread peace, to spread democracy. Remy. Remy. What, what happened? I can only see the boxes we kept them in. The detainees. Where I would move inside the door, three steps, turn to the table, sit down, pour myself a glass of water, look at the man seated. They wanted me to look him in the eye. This was very important. Raise the glass of water to your lips. Don't take a sip. Just pause for five seconds. Put the glass down without drinking. Stand up. Walk toward the man. My commander wasn't concerned about my skill to understand this man, this person, this naked human being strapped to a chair with his hands tied above his head in a small room with the mice, rats all around, a single light bulb that was never turned off. The only thing my commander was concerned with was that I was a woman and what he was asking me to do, in part, was cultural torture. In the forest. The green zone. One in the same. But it didn't stop with not respecting their general views about women. If it had, I might have been able to discount it. To just call it how a war was won. The other things. My fellow soldiers. What they did. What I did. The forest. How did you get there? I woke up here. I looked for signs that I was carried or dragged, but I could see no disturbance in the grass, in the sand, no signs. The ground doesn't look like a forest should. There isn't sand in the forest. The forest. The forest. Yes. What did you hear when you awoke in the forest? I can't remember. It must have sounded like a forest. Describe it if you can. Begin at a place. A place you can picture in your head. At a beach. It begins at the ocean and the sand. The sand. So much sand. Airplanes. Up-armored Humvees. Abrams battle tanks. Bradley fighting vehicles. Unarmored Humvees. Patriot missile systems, Avenger Humvees, Hercules recovery vehicles, Challenger 2 battle tanks, Saxon armored personnel carriers, Scimitar reconnaissance vehicles, Sabre reconnaissance vehicles, and tens of white Land Rover light trucks. Tell me more. No, I can't. All my memories have been thrown away or buried. But how did you get here? I walked. There are no longer any other forms of travel. No more cars, no more buses, at least for me. I still hear airplanes, so someone out there has the ability to fly. But not me. I thought you heard the highway. It's just singing in my ears. It sounds like the memory of a highway, a memory of vehicles, of order.
couldn't live with the facts, with what I was asked to do. I can't go on knowing that I am part of it all. That's why my mind wanders to whether to live or to take arms against myself. If I believe that this war has a just cause, and that what I am doing is for a greater good, then I live. Or if I need to oppose it, the war on terror, and all that it represents, and how? And how do I stop these generals, the politicians, the thirst they have? How do I stop them here in the desert, all alone? I just want to sleep, to dream of a different world than I am in now. I have no one to talk to, no one with the correct security clearance that can understand. The days of sweat, this weary life, the pain I've caused, the deaths I've witnessed, they're on my hands, they're in my mind. I am unable to look at this world without seeing those men, those boys, that didn't know anything. So now I consider. My mom. How will she, how could she understand? My mom went to church most Sundays, and to her, well, she can never explain to Rome and me what was next. She called it an undiscovered country, a land of the unknown. I will go there and hope that in this land, this forest, I can find sleep. Dear listener, Thank you for joining us for the fourth episode of the Idaho Street Workshop. The workshop is written and produced by myself, John Wenzel, with the additional voices of Anna Clark and Brian Taylor. For more information about the program, please visit the website, idahostreetworkshop.com. Please tune in for our next episode, Honest. Until then, from San Diego to your ears, thank you for listening. Thank you.